So today's guest is a return guest, Keanu Cantor, and I'm really excited to have a chat to him. We're going to be talking to a whole range of subjects from his recent birding trips, his local patch, atlasing, and also his obsession with warblers. This is going to be a fascinating chat. For those that listened to the last episode with, with Keanu will know this is an episode you don't want to miss. Bring new life into your garden with Westerman's Wild Bird Seed. A delicious seed mix attracting a variety of wild birds to your garden. Now available in a 10 kg bag plus 1 kg free. Find it at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westermans for the love of birds. My name is Adam and this Proudly South African podcast is your weekly source of news about birds, birders, destinations, conservation, gear, books and anything that we think birders will want to hear about. So... Welcome to the show. There are two easy ways to support us that will cost you nothing to do. The first way is by telling someone else about the podcast. So if you enjoy the content in the show, please share it with someone else. A second way is by following this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to it on and take some time to rate and comment on it. These two steps help us to grow the podcast and reach new listeners. Please drop us either a direct message on any of our social media platforms or send us an email on info at the and tell us where you listen to the show from. We would love to get to know you better. So let's get into this week's episode with Keanu Cantor. So Keanu, welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much for having me on again. Uh, it's always good to have return guests. And you know what I love about doing this podcast which has been one of the biggest highlights is the people I've got to know it's like you start having someone as a guest and as the show carries on you start building a friendship with someone so it's been really cool to get to know you and we've had a lot of really cool chats about birds and identification so that's been cool I'm, I'm really excited to have a chat to you today. Thanks so much man you are, I mean you really get to know people I'm sure by the podcast and I mean I think we should go breeding sometime. <laughs> Yeah, we've got to get you down to KZ, and I was quite surprised when we were chatting the other day to say that you've never, ever birded in KZ, and can you believe it? <laughs> I know, it's quite a shocker when I tell people that, so I really have to make a plan soon. What's your life list on at the moment, if you don't mind, if you don't mind me asking? It's about, I mean, it hasn't really moved much over the past few years, but I mean, it's about plus minus 500 or so. That's pretty impressive. I mean, 500 or so, and you haven't done KZN. KZN's got the Zuland specials, and yeah, so come down to KZN. We'll get you a lot more birds, and we'll get that life list ticking over once again. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there's a lot of specials as well as the more common species that I still need around there. I mean, you've got, you guys have got some great diversity there along the coast. Yeah, what's always been interesting, and I, I mentioned in the introduction, the fact that, you know, I think what both of us share in common is this love of local birding. And I, I, I said it when we were preparing for this episode that you know there was a time where I kind of got frustrated because everyone was going all around the country and they were chasing after these special birds every time a, uh, a rarity which uh, people would be getting their cars and driving three four five hours to get this bird and honestly I didn't have the time and I didn't have the finances to go and it was quite discouraging because people were always adding new birds and I wasn't able to add birds and I eventually decided that I was going to get to know my local patch as well as I could and I started you know, going and birding almost every single day, just going and visiting different places on my local on my local patch. And it's been really exciting. I was, one of the birds I recently discovered was a bird that I'd seen up at, um, we'd seen up in Stanger, which is, well, probably 150, 200 kilometers from where I stay. And 
I'd seen it there and I'd always thought that the, the habitat is quite similar. And I went birding uh, the other night, did a bit of a during load shedding, did a night drive, which is a funny story. I'll just tell you before we get into your side of things. And I went down this road and I managed to get a square-tailed night drive, which was the first suburb record for the whole of Durban. I was pretty stoked about that. But here's the funny part of the story. I come out of the... I come out of the road and a police car comes behind me, puts the lights on. And you know you're in trouble when they talk over the loudspeaker. So they spoke of the loudspeaker oh, and the guy said, you know, I must put the engine off. And he was like, get out the car with your hands up. This is crazy. I come out, I get out the car with my hands up. Then I have to try and pull my camera to show the guy that I'm actually taking photos of birds. So... I don't know if anyone else who's listening to the show, maybe they can email us if they have. I don't know if anyone else has nearly been arrested for birding. <laughs> but one of the one of the passions that we both have is this passion for local birding. I want to ask you right at the beginning, how do you keep this passion going? You know, where you don't get dis- where you maybe get discouraged when people are chasing after all these rarities, but you keep this passion. How have you kept that passion up and just grown to love your local patch more and more? Yeah, I mean I think one of the things that really draws me to bird watching is that you never really stop learning. So there's, even if you like only able to focus on the area that's like, say, close to where you live, then there's still always something that you can learn and discover about the birds around you. So for instance, with like a favorite pastime of mine, and I'm sure yours as well, is pentad atlasing, where you do these five-day surveys of the birds in your local area for the Southern African Bird Atlas Project. And it's really amazing how in that, in such a small area, over time you gradually learn the habits of the birds and the specific habitats that they prefer. And it's really amazing to see just how many species that you initially couldn't have imagined that, you know, that they occurred there. And then you it's actually possible to get them so close to home. It's always quite a surprise. So for instance, I recently did a nice five-day Atlas card here in my home pentad in Pretoria East. And yeah, there was really some surprises there. I I think what what I love about this, and you were talking about this, we'll go about some of those surprises. I'm interested to ask you a question about that. But you know, I'm not one of these people that's an expert on habit on habitats. And I remember when I, one of my, actually my, either my first or my second episode, I chatted to Trevor Hodick and I asked him, you know, what is the most important thing a birder should own? He said the importance of understanding habitat. And it didn't make much sense at that time, but the more I've birded, the more I've seen the importance of habitats. And often when I see a bird somewhere, I'll see the habitat that it's founded. And then my mind, when I'm going out birding my, in my more local areas, I'll start picking up where the habitat is, is, you know, maybe similar to where I'd seen that bird at the altitude's almost the same. And then I'll start not just working at what I've seen, but there also starts to, you know, build that idea of what could be seen. And I think it's this, that's what I love about local, local patch birding. You, you, you get to see the birds that everybody else has seen, but as you start to get intimately acquainted with your local patch, you start to imagining and work out what could be seen. And it's not luck because it's almost like you're you're actually able to use the knowledge you've had from books and birding in other places and the, the knowledge of the place. And you're able to put all that together and you're actually able to find some really fantastic birds. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, for instance, here in Gauteng, there's some great thornfelt areas. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure like many of your listeners know of the Zorchkel Drift area. And there's some really special birds there that like that thornfelt. And I mean, I've found a few patches of similar thornfelt 
right down here near Pretoria, where you can get similar species as up there near Zorchel Drift. So, yeah, as you say, it's really about trying to find these small little patches of habitat that you've recognized before in, in other places that you've birded and then trying to figure out what sort of species can I expect there. What are some of the specials that you find in your local patch? And maybe the other side is what are some of those birds that other people have seen on the patch that you still would like to see? Yeah, so here where I live, it's quite a nice little situation where my, basically my home pen dad, that's that area that you collect data for, for the SABAP2 project, encompasses a bit of urban areas, but then also quite a few nice rural areas on the edge of the city. And we've got a quite a nice little place here called Hazeldean Valley, which has in itself a variety of habitats like grasslands and thornfelt. So in the, my latest Atlas card there in December, I managed to find things like Icterine warbler, which was quite a surprise. That they're usually, you know, your typical thornfelt species that typically find found a bit further north of Pretoria, as well as other things like burnt-necked eremomelas and red-billed five-inches, all your typical thornfelt species. And I mean, I've, I've also had things like white throats and in there there in the past. And on your second point, I've heard of people who have gotten things like southern white-faced owl there. And I've got a friend who's seen uh, cross owls nearby in the pentad before. So, I mean, I probably should head out a bit more often at night. <laughs> though, as, as you said, you can run into awkward situations sometimes. Luckily, I, though, I haven't had an encounter with the police like you have. But the interesting thing is, you know, you speak about that, you know, first you spoke about the idea that you get into a certain habitat and you come back and you see a habitat that looks the same. But I think the other point, which is interesting, and, and one of these more intelligent ornithologists than I am, not that I'm an ornithologist, but someone who's a lot cleverer than I am, let me say that much. They spoke about the fact that when you when you go to places and you see certain birds that are found in a certain habitat, that oftentimes you'll find other birds that are also found in that in that habitat. So for people that are listening that, you know, you might go and you might not get all the habitat stuff, figure out what habitat you're in or whatever might be a bit tricky, but you get into certain habitats and you'll get birds that might, for example, be seen in acacia grass, acacia type habitat. And oftentimes there'll be other birds that'll find them. I mean, that's what we found. There's a little spot down here um, around a dam, a mini dam, where we get a lot of these acacia type specials and it's unusual because it's not really that kind of habitat but it's quite interesting how we get quite a few of these acacia type acacia type birds and it's quite interesting what's cool about that is is that once we find that first one that kind of fits in with that habitat we start looking for other birds that would also be found in that habitat and it's you know we're looking at altitude and all that type of thing but it's it's interesting how all these little things come together it's it's not just looking for the birds you put all these little in things together and it's it's quite it's actually fascinating yeah it's quite amazing how birds often stick to these very specific habitats up here in Gauteng our bush felt is mostly divided into the more acacia thorn felt you get species like Kalari scrub robin and Bard wren warbler and things like that, and broadleaved woodland with with less acacia trees. It's you know these broadleaf trees with things like green-capped eremomelas and bushveld pipits. So I mean, I suppose yeah. I mean, birding a lot of birding can be about getting to know different habitats around you, and I suppose that could even start to extend to learning to 
identify the different tree species around you and then that can tell you about the different birds that occur there. It's quite amazing how the habitat of an area is so closely linked to the species that occur there. I'll ask you this question, but the question that I've asked when I first started birding, and I think I've come to, I've come up with an answer what I'd give people. I always ask people, what is the advice that you'd give to a, new bird, a newer birder? And there's a lot of different answers, but the answer that I think I'd give to a new birder, and there's a reason I'm bringing it up now, and I'll ask you to give your opinion on what I'm saying, or maybe you've got other advice. I think where I went wrong when I started birding is I tried to grow my lifeless too quickly. And that might sound quite weird because that's a good thing to do. But I would bird my local patch, tick birds of tick, 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 whatever you got. And then I'd say, oh, let's go find where I can get some more lifers. And then I'd go to the next place, the next place, the next place. But what happened was I never actually grew and I never actually understood how to identify those birds properly. It was almost like I was I had a very shallow approach to my birding. And I think if I went back, I would try to bird my local patch a lot more for the first three, four, five, even six months and get familiar with what I see. So for example, a stupid example is is if you see a brown-headed kingfisher, for example, and you see brown-headed kingfisher like almost every day in KZN, every time you see it, you, you're building a, a database in your head of what a kingfisher looks like. And then obviously when you, you know, you might be birding later on and see a half-colored kingfisher, you might not know what, what kingfisher you're looking at, but you know you're looking at a kingfisher. And I know it's a bit of a ob kind of example, but, you know, that could f- work with starlings, work with doves, work with all the, the different species. And I think if people were to get intimately acquainted with the birds in their local patch, I think when they start heading to other places, it becomes easier to identify birds because you, you're you not starting from, you know, paging through your bird book and trying to page through nine, um, 700 pages or five, or how much ever pages in the book. You're not going through 900 species or whatever. But immediately you've, you've, you're narrowing down your frame of reference. You say, okay, I don't know what this is, but I know this is, a, I've seen lots of starlings. I've seen red-winged starlings sitting on the roof, the roof where I stay. I, I don't know what this is, but I can see this is a starling. Then you, ha- then you can kind of narrow it down. Would, would you think that would be a good advice to give to a newer birder? Or what advice would you give to a, new bird, a newer birder? Yeah, I mean, that's great advice. Um, I mean, it, of course, it's exciting to go to new areas and try and see as many new species as possible. But yeah, as you say, lo- local patch birding is really great for getting familiar with the local species. And then you really get to know how to identify them. And then birds that are new to you immediately, immediately stand out as new. Like for instance, with me, I probably, so I spent a lot of time birding around Pretoria, seeing many willow warblers, for example. And then I would always go through my bird book and look at how they kind of say well, how willow warbler and ecturine warbler are so similar so here i am what kind of worrying about you know the first time i see an ecturine warbler will i actually be able to recognize it but by i eventually by that i'd probably seen hundreds of willow warblers and then the first time i went i was up in the pilansburg and suddenly i was surrounded by quite a few ecturine warblers and they because of all that experience with willow warblers, you know, those ecterine warblers just stood out so much. So it's, yeah, getting to know familiar species can really prepare you for when you do eventually go out and search for life as more. So so probably that's probably what a lot of these guys do. Um, these guys who see these these species, and I've always wondered, like, if I see certain birds, like, yes, how the heck did that pick that up, pick that bird out? 
But I think it's that. I mean, people that are probably good at picking up waders, they just spend hours and hours and hours just looking at the same flipping waders every single week. So that as soon as something's different stands out, they sorry, say, no, no, I don't know what that is, but that's different. And I think that advice is really fantastic, getting familiar with, uh, you know, with the common because the more you see the common when something is different, straight away you might not know what it is, but it stands out. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's also a great way to eventually start to try and find rarities, you know, vagrant birds. Because, I mean, if you're birding your local patch so regularly that you know your, your local birds intimately, when that uh, beard sandpiper or that um, olive tree warbler or lesser whitethroat or something turns up and turns you into a birding celebrity then I'm, I'm, you'll have quite a good chance of, you know, recognizing that it's different. I'm, that's different, I'm sure. So you were telling me that you've done a little bit of guarding. So how have you been able to both apply the knowledge you have into guarding, but also use that knowledge to connect other birders or, the, or, or clients with birds? How has that, that, that guarding journey looked for you? Yeah, I mean... When it comes to, like, as you're talking about habitats and stuff, I mean, if someone wants to see a specific bird or a specific group of birds, then, you know, again, that habitat knowledge becomes very, very useful to kind of plan an itinerary for your clients. And, yeah, and then I also do quite a bit of guiding for the local bird club where, you know, a lot of emphasis is placed on getting to, you know, getting newer birders more acquainted with the birds around them. So quite a bit of that guiding is around my local patches. So it's great to introduce people to these familiar birds and, you know, get them started on that birding journey. Yeah, so so the thing is, a lot of younger birders especially, they don't see the value of bird clubs. You know, it's almost like there's these WhatsApp groups and these Telegram groups and they're able to go bird themselves. And, you know, you really are plugged into your local club. And something about yourself is, you know, you might not be an old bully, but you are, you are quite an experienced birder. So the question I want to ask you is, do you still see value for bird clubs, especially for younger birders? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a member of BirdLife Northern Gauteng up here in um, Pretoria. And while it, it's definitely more, you know, the numbers are definitely more leaning towards, you know, old people being parts of bird clubs there's definitely still yeah i mean there's great people that you can meet and there's also a lot of experience often to draw from these older birders who have been birding for often longer than i've been alive i mean there's there's some club leaders that have been part of the bird club for 30 years or so and i mean it's great to be able to get to know them and draw from their experience. I mean, there's always something that you can learn from someone else, I think. And I've also, I mean, met quite a few young people through the bird club. So there's you know, definitely young people to meet as well. And so, yeah, all in all, it's great for making new friends, making new birding buddies. I mean, I, I suppose another advantage that would particularly appeal to younger birders is that, is that often you can, for instance organize lifts with people and stuff going on birding outings. I mean, I know transport and money is often a bit more of a problem when it comes to us younger people. 
So yeah, there's definitely many advantages to being part of a bird club, even for the younger generation. As always, the Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarovsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. One of the ways that you can help us to keep putting out the content that we are releasing is by supporting our online shop. We sell optics, books, Westerman's products, and a whole lot more. Check out the shop on our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. If you need any help with any of the products, please don't hesitate to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com. So we're kind of halfway, well, more, more than halfway through this chat. And, uh, you know, I haven't actually taken the time to, people might be saying, who the heck is this oak? You know, this oak's talking about birding net. Who is he? So we're right in the middle of, well, not not right the middle, yeah, probably about the middle of the month of love, February, Valentine's Day is approaching. And uh, firstly, do you know what a Tinder profile is? Yes, I do. <laughs> Okay, so a Tinder, I won't ask you if you've got a Tinder profile, I don't embarrass you, but for those that don't know, Tinder is a dating app and, you know, people basically set up profiles on there and they describe themselves, put their coolest little selfie on there or whatever to try and put themselves um, forward and the best way possible. So here's the question. If you were to set up a Tinder profile for people to get to know you better, what would you say? Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Um, so what? I'd probably describe myself as a adventure-loving computer science student who loves nature and who wouldn't mind going on dates to the sewage works to go burning. <laughs> Although I'm not, I'm not sure if that last point would uh, push more people away than I would want. <laughs> and then something we didn't ask you last time, but I, I'm always interested to know because people aren't one-dimensional they you know that they, they bird and they we're all crazy birders but there's always things that we do outside of birding you know what hobbies do you have outside of birding you know besides nature and all that what what else makes you tick well besides nature um I've, yeah i mean I've, I've, i probably always have too many things that i'm busy with so i often have like computer coding projects that i'm busy with that i'm outside of um, university as well because university I'm also I'm also studying so that also takes up quite a bit of time then yeah I also do quite a bit of I like swimming running you know those sort of things to keep me active and then I mean even besides birding but still sticking with the nature theme I've been getting quite a bit into plants and botany at the moment and moths and dragonflies and pretty much everything so yeah, I'm, I'm quite a busy body. <laughs> and then that, in terms of coding and that, you know, how do you think that that area has helped you as a birder? Because I mean, it's very a lot. I can just think there must be a lot of similarities in some way. How has that helped you to grow as a birder? And in terms of the way you approach your birding, your bird identification, how, how, have, how have you seen crossover between the two? Yeah, I think it's definitely defined the sort of birder that I am. I'm quite. I like being, you know, quite analytical and really going into in depth into bird identification and stuff like that. And then, of course, on the other hand, things such as the new Merlin bird ID that uses artificial intelligence, that really fascinates me. 
Yeah, that's uh, the the eBird guys, the guys at Cornell University. The stuff they're putting out is absolutely fantastic. I mean, the eBird app is really the data and that on there. I mean, I think for anyone that's into that kind of stuff, must be blown away with like the Merlin and um, eBird and the stuff they're putting out. I mean, they really are are pushing the boundaries of you know integrating technology with birds, where you actually can go out and use your phone for where it doesn't become a distraction, but it actually helps you grow as a bird it's really this stuff's fantastic yeah they've got some really amazing products and it's also what fascinates me is just how they manage to use all of this data that they get from for instance e-birders or in the case of more southern africa from the southern african bird atlas project and how you can do these sort of visualizations of how birds are migrating at different times of the year and stuff like what I'm, I'm, I'm doing computer science with a focus on data science. So it's quite cool to be able to see how from all of this data from many different people, you're able to get these like visualizations and things in the end, which are really, they really tell you a lot about birds and their habits. And then talking about data, obviously the in South African sense, we have the SABA project, the South African Bird Atlasing Project, which is a fantastic uh, website. It's probably my favorite website I use the most as a birder to just, you know, study what birds could be seen. You are an avid atlas, so we spoke about that earlier. I also love atlasing. So let's firstly, let me ask the question, how do you understand atlasing and why do you feel that it is, an import- it is important for birders to get out there and to atlas? I mean, it's a great way to contribute to conservation, so that's why it's I mean, important to get out there. I mean, that data can be used by researchers writing papers that will be used to designate new protected areas and stuff. And But I mean, besides the conservation part of it, it's also the, the whole atlasing kind of forces you to stay in one area and try and find as many of the birds in that area as possible and I mean that brings us back to the one of our first points of it can really help you to get familiar with those birds and then how do you approach your atlasing you know you we spoke about the fact that it limits you to an area how does that planning process look like for you before you got an atlas and how does it look like for you on the field yeah so I'm mostly just atlas like my local area. Uh, so that'll be like my home pentad and the surrounding pentads. But yeah, so what I'll do is maybe before I start a five-day card, I'll look at uh, various habitats and try to kind of plan, plan a bit about around which habitats I'll visit and try and, you know, include all the different habitats. And then once kind of you start, then as you start to pick up new species and stuff, another very useful thing to do is to, on the Sabap2 website, is to go to that pentode and open up the species list and you can sort it by reporting rate, which is basically a percentage of, which tells you what percentage of the Atlas cards that that specific species was recorded for. And if you filter it by that, then you can kind of see, you know, what sort of species am I missing? Which species can I still try and target? But then even besides that, you'll, one of the joys of atlasing is you're going to find stuff that aren't even on that list. And 
So yeah, sometimes you get a few surprises like that, like that, and then yeah, sometimes you also miss out on a few things. I mean, there might be a common species that's got a high reporting rate that you miss out on. So it's always fun to see what that species will be. And yeah, it's. I mean, all your cards will be different, and I mean, I suppose that's another great thing about data and statistics is that you've got that variation that enables the when you infer from the data in the end you know you've got that nice spread of data which can tell you a bunch of things about the area i think what's always interesting about birds is birds have wings um that's like not like a major discovery but birds can fly anywhere but it always amazes me when i atlas that there's certain birds that stay in exactly the same place. Like there's a, a tree. Literally, it's a, it's a tree, a specific tree. I can go there almost every single day at certain times of the day, and there is a village indigo bird that sits in that tree and calls. And it just amazes me how, you know, as you're at this, you start to learn. There's, there's birds that move around, and there's birds that you can almost bet your bottom dollar that that bird is going to be there at exactly the same place at exactly the same time in the day and I'm even I've started sitting in the garden in the morning and just recording birds and what what has amazed me which I've never seen before I kind of stand outside with my 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 bowl of future life and my binoculars around my neck and I kind of just record the birds that I see so you know there's most mornings there's white-tiered barbets that hang in the one tree on the one side but almost every morning at a Around half past seven or so, uh, there's some collared sunbirds, and they fly. There's two collared sunbirds that fly through, almost like clockwork, every single day, and they fly from this tree to this tree to this tree. And it really amazes me, like when you start spending time in nature, how many, how, you know, how organized nature is, how there's certain patterns that that are part of nature. And I find that really 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 amazing you know i just it's something that that absolutely fascinates me is trying to predict these patterns and you know it doesn't always work out but it's it's been very interesting and, and the more atlas in my area the more i'm able to pick up where certain birds are and you know like even we talk about those nightjars where i got the square-tailed uh, nightjar which is really amazing because there's there's you drive down this road and you see nothing and then all of a sudden there's like this little turning circle and you get square-tailed fire-necked European nightjar, and you get uh, and you get owls there, and it's nowhere else in the road you get these birds. You just you go to that turning circle, and that's where they all are. And it's just amazing how there there's this order to to nature that just blows my mind. Yeah, as you say, I mean, I also have some of these individual birds that always seem to be at the same corpus and stuff. So it's amazing how sedentary those birds are. But then on the other hand, it's amazing how you mean, I mean, like that's another advantage of birding your local areas. You get to know these the movements of these birds and where they are at different times of the year. So for example, here, there's a little bit of like a, a mountain ridge behind my house where eventually by birding that area long enough and throughout the year, I managed to figure out that for some reason, the cinnamon-breasted buntings only seem to occur here in summer. And I mean, they're not usually talked about as like a migratory bird or anything, but they obviously do have some local movements that are doing that they're doing. So it's really fascinating to pick up on these small little things and these habits of your local birds. 
And also, I like I, I like the fact you can get your you get your field guide and you can read about the when birds are around and that. But you know what I've started to see is that like you as you start atlasing, you start to pick up when the birds are around, when they're not around. So, for example, what I'm doing right now is I'm going out at least once a week to that spot where I nearly got arrested. I go to the same spot again. And I've try, firstly, I'm trying to pick up, is the square-tailed nitrile going to stay there? That's the first thing I want to know because, again, it's a fantastic record for Durban. So I go once a week. Is it there? What's been interesting is there's only been a female, you know, the with the, like the more buff stripes in the wing and the and the buff outer tail feathers. There ha- I have not seen a male there yet, which is which is interesting because obviously birds want food um, to mate and a safe place. But it's interesting that there's no male there. So I don't know if she's just passing through or what. Um, that's something I'm trying to figure out myself. Um, the European nightjar, I'm also interested to see how long are they going to stay. I know the book will say something, but how long is that bird going to stay there? When is it going to migrate? When is it going to go? Um, and what was interesting was the way I found that European nightjar was the fact that uh, in January, not last year, the year before, uh, what's uh, year before, um, we went down one of the roads there and we got the European arch on the road at night and it's almost in the same place. So it's interesting this bird migrates to all sorts of places and it comes back, but it comes back to the same place. And I, I just, I find that fascinating. I think that, you know, we, we, asked, uh, we asked you the question earlier about how you keep your local patch interesting. But that is what's interesting for me is to start picking up those patterns and start understanding. Like almost, it's like you get to know that that individual bird. And yeah, I just find that interesting. You know, I find it uh, that that for me is what what's driving a lot of my birding at the moment. Yeah, those arrival and departure dates when you start to keep track of those for your migrant birds, they're always interesting. You know, to keep tabs on. And here we have um, another different little nature reserve that I visit quite frequently in my hometown. Uh, we've got like quite a few marsh warblers that uh, live there in the undergrowth in the weeds. So they're really tough to get a good view of, let alone a photo. But recently I spent some time there and tried to get some photographs of them. And it's actually... And then later on, I actually sat down with those photographs and it's fascinating to then go through a book like I went through, I think, uh, Reed and Bush Warblers of the World, where they go through the entire process of how these birds migrate, you know, when they, so they, for instance, they depart from Eastern Europe and then they spend uh, like a, a couple of weeks stopping over at this yet undiscovered stopover area in Ethiopia and then they come down here to South Africa and then they start their molt in around beginning of January and it's actually fascinating to then be able to go into those photos and see if you can spot those little feathers that are busy molting on these birds and almost kind of track the molt on the birds before they leave again for Europe. So yeah, molting is of course when birds replace their feathers regularly in preparation for, for example, for migrating north again. And I know there was even a quite a fascinating blogs, blog post I read recently where there was, a, I think, a, a vagrant puppet or something somewhere in Asia where the guy was going every, every, pretty much every day to 
get a photo of this vagrant puppet and he, he actually managed to point out on those photos how each feather is replaced on the bird's wing in succession. So, I mean, yeah, just birding in your local area, I mean, there's pretty much no way to get bored of that because, yeah, I mean, you can start get as, getting as crazy as me and trying to track a bird's molt on its feathers <laughs> from photos. So, yeah, there's always something more you can learn and more you can investigate about the birds in your local area. The book you're speaking about, is that the, the Helm Guide? Uh, yeah, I believe it's a Helm Guide. It's a, yeah, I believe so. It's the Reed and Bush Warblers of the World, so it covers all your, most of your warblers except, like, your leaf warblers. So that's like your willow warbler. So most of our local warblers are covered in there. So it's really quite a cool book. And I mean, it includes all those species from around the world. So it's always fascinating to see what occurs in other countries as well. Quite cool because I'm just looking at, I'm looking at online as we talk and it's, you know, the plates look really amazing. Like quite, quite a lot of different, uh, you know, variations are illustrated. There's photos which are quite cool, just showing the different, uh, you know, the different stages of the malt and that type of thing. There's the distribution. Uh, yeah, it looks like a really fantastic book to get to, to, for anyone to get hold of. I think if you want to get to understand these birds a little bit better, it's really a great book to get. If you were to get a birder a book, if you were to say, okay, I'm going to gift a birder with a book, which book would you get them and why? I mean, I think it probably most depends on whether they are, a new, newer birder or a more experienced birder. I think in terms of either your newer birders, you need like a nice general book or app, things like Francie Peacock's um, Birding Guide for Kids even, or his the, the, the Five Finch app has some great illustrations and things and great um, sonograms that are annotated. In terms of, you know, when a birder kind of, seeks out more in-depth information, like a kind of a, an overload of information, things like Robert's, especially that big Robert's book, which I think is pretty much completely condensed into their app. That's got like a, a real wealth of information. And then eventually even those, even specialist guides such as, you know, this Reed and Bush Warbler book that we've just talked about or Fancy's LBJ's, or his waders book those are really special books for the more experienced birder that really wants to delve a bit more into bird identification do you have quite a decent book collection of a uh, bird book collection yeah it's actually it's getting quite a <laughs> quite a bit now i mean i've got an entire shelf now that's dedicated to bird books and lately i've also started to pick up books kind of from around the world so like recently my sister gifted me this nice wildlife conservation society birds of brazil the birds from the atlantic forest in brazil so it's yeah i'm trying to work on my international bird books now <laughs> so yeah just just a few more questions just a couple of fun questions just to end off uh if we got in the car and we were going to do a road trip for an hour or so and i said okay kiana the playlist is over to you. What would be some music that you'd be playing on your playlist? <laughs> yeah, so for me, any sort of feel-good sort of music, such as maybe a bit of pop or pop rock or alternative EDM. So things like, so people like Coldplay or Martin Garrix, 
Alan Walker, Avicii. Those are probably the sort of things I'd listen to. <laughs> Hopefully, you'd be able to tolerate me. <laughs> but I mean, even, yeah, I mean, and then again, sometimes it's also nice to switch off the music and just look out the window at the scenery. That's also a, a favorite thing of mine to do. So a blend of those. <laughs> I must say, you Coldplay is a fantastic band. You know, I think it's, uh, I was watching, uh, I might be wrong with the amount of dates. If you're a music lover, don't come and slam me. Um, this is a burning podcast. We allowed to make mistakes around, uh, around <laughs> music. But I saw, I think it was late last year or early this year, one of the two Coldplay played and they, Played at uh, in at in I think it was Wembley Stadium or something in 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 the UK, or the Olympic Stadium, one of those stadiums, and it was like amazing. I mean, I just was checking these these guys sold the stadium up for like two or three nights in a row, and I thought that's epic when a band can sell a stadium out for that amount of time. I mean, like I would love to see Coldplay live. I saw you know we Imagine Dragons were here a few weeks ago. Sting was here would have been pretty mind-blowing uh, counting crows are coming later this year it's like there's some really cool bands coming but counting uh um coldplay is one of those bands i'd really like to see i think you know they are uh you know in terms of the music they write it's just fantastic i mean the way they're able to merge different styles together so yeah i think i would tolerate your your, your list uh, on if we did, did a trip together yeah <laughs> yeah i mean coldplay i mean as you say they've got quite a few styles so that's always nice and then if you could have dinner and pick the brain with any any birder in the world, who would it be and why? Ah, so for me, probably, oh, this is a, it's a good one. Um, well, if you want to put three down, you can have three people around your table because there's only four chairs around. So you can put, if you want to put three people around, pick three three birders you want to sit around the table with, and you, and why would you like those people to be at the table with you? So I mean, yeah, for me, probably there's quite a few people that I know. You know, I've read their their works before, their books before. So there'd be people like maybe Dick Forsman. He's a raptor expert from. Um, I think he's more from like the Middle East, Europe, that's around that area. And he's probably the world's foremost expert on raptors. Then maybe Hadaram Shirahai. He's like a foremost expert on pelagic birds. <laughs> and yeah, maybe there's, uh, there's a couple of guys that really get into gulls and gulling in, the, in Europe, such as Lo Bertalan. Uh, I've, I'm part of one of his Facebook groups where they just discuss goal identification and stuff. And I mean, these these three people, what probably impresses me the most is just kind of the, the depth that they give to bird identification. That's really something that I'm passionate about and I'm excited about. So it would be quite interesting to have an expert in raptors, an expert in seabirds and an expert in gulls all sitting around a table and probably discussing whose birds are the most difficult to identify <laughs> that would be an interesting topic so yeah that would be that would be pretty cool i think the the coolest uh one of the coolest moments i had as a birder was um on the flock to marion cruise uh we went and we met with the guys from the bird pro app and there a whole lot of people sitting around a in a group having a conversation and on one side of me 
was Dave Hodenot, who's like got the biggest bird list in Africa and just hearing his stories and adventures where he's been to, oh, was amazing. And then on the other side of me was um, Forrest Rowland, who is, you know, he's with, with Rock Jumper and just hearing the stories. I mean, South American birding and oh, man, what an amazing time. I think if I was to pick three people, it might be those two people. Um, I mean, I've got to sit with fancy peacock at table. So if I hadn't sat with him, I probably would like some of the table. But another person I just find absolutely fascinating. I just think he's one of the most insightful people. And I just find him an, an, a fascinating person is is um, is Dom Rollinson. I mean, he's such a brilliant birder and a lacquer oak also. So, yeah, I might get those two world listers um, to the, the, the bird celebrities around. And then, yeah, I'll just get this guy with this fantastic knowledge of birds. So, yeah, that would be probably be my three. But, yeah, you'd probably be quite a cool guest also just to sit and <laughs> pick your brain about warblers and these really ob birds that you find cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to make a plan. Yeah, go out for dinner and some birding in KZN. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll hopefully one eat chicken because the birds might feel a bit weird. But yeah, Kiana, it's been awesome to chat to you, man. It'd be great. Sometime, I just thought about this when we were chatting, maybe we must pick your brain and do a warbler webinar. That's quite cool, warbler webinar. Do a warbler we webinar and just you know go through some of the stuff, You know, get a couple of the images and just show people the process you're using. I think it'd be quite cool. So if you're up for that, let me know and we will hook that up and... Yeah, maybe people will come will be coming to you to ask you to sign their Sarovsky binoculars because you're so cool and awesome. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great plan. I would definitely be up to that. Yeah, thanks, man. So we'll chat soon, bud. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast again. And it's really been great chatting to you again. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's show. We really appreciate your support. If you have any comments or feedback on any of the episodes, feel free to drop us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com or send us a message on any of our social media platforms. We would love to get to know you better. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.